five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh from the Wisconsin DMA and the International Society for Strategic Marketing. Eh, we're cleaning up some stuff I've been wanting to talk about, but I found this silly ad, and uh, it was another award winner, and so I thought I'd show it to you. I'll set the stage a little bit because it's um, it's sort of like plastic dolls, like Lego people, kind of, and 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 Boris whatever his name is, the Prime Minister of UK, that they make fun of a lot, is uh, giving a speech and plastic starts dropping down on him and starts this tidal wave. So we'll pick it up in the middle because it's kind of funny from the middle and it's still a little bit long and I'll cut it off a little short and maybe I should even uh, playback speed. I'll speed it up a little because why not, right? I can. So let's get over there and see it and I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. So it's flooding the street. Now it says. It's pouring in the, the doors and the windows and everything. And they just said that they'd banned plastic straws and bland, and stir sticks and uh, plastic cotton balls or something like that. And in the end, I like the end. We'll just go to that. In the end, it shows this big pile of plastic, for those of you on podcast. This is the annual amount of plastic waste the UK dumps on other countries every single day. Okay. Plastic waste the government claims is recycled is being dumped and burned overseas. Good point. Causing health emergency for local people, killing wildlife, and polluting our oceans. Okay. So all that stuff is true. Um, although I watch a lot of sailing channels and, um, there's still a lot of beauty in the world. These aren't the only, the, the only views. And oftentimes these views are ones in their own harbors from their own people and they just don't clean it up. And the, the truth is that the cleanup is best in countries with the highest gross domestic product per capita. And that once you hit about seven, eight thousand dollars annual income, which isn't a lot, but once you hit that, countries get much more serious about tackling other issues, and plastic waste is one of them. So, you know, I thought, well, now I got, I got myself thinking about this, and I thought, you know, what most people don't understand is that we could be burning this and turning it into energy, and so I went over to my PDFs. And I got a, I found an article because Minneapolis, Minneapolis, Minnesota has a waste incineration plant that generates energy and um, burns 250 tons of garbage, I think a day, um, which is about that, almost that picture of the UK's garbage. I don't know what that works out, but, uh, and it says that we generate worldwide about one 0.3 billion tons of garbage per year. This is a well footnoted. It's from Green Tumble. Well footnoted article. Really good article. I encourage you to join the subscribe or join WDMA and in the members only every every day there is the full article. And this one has lots of footnotes and stuff if you don't believe what I'm talking about. But 1.3 billion tons of garbage is about four times the body weight of every man, woman, child on earth. So you can just figure in round numbers. Now, probably in the U.S. it's much worse uh, that we, you know, you think about, okay, we got three people in our household and how much does a 
you know, one bag of trash weigh? I don't know, 20 pounds. And how many bags of trash a year? You know, I don't know, 60, 70. So let's say 60. So that's, uh, what, 1,200 pounds of trash a year. You know, maybe we're a little light. We're pretty conscious about that stuff. But the bottom line is it's a lot. And um, about 60% of the garbage ends up in landfills. That's in the industrialized nations. But if you dump it in the ocean or, you dump, you know, it'll end up in a dump and burning, maybe continuously burning. Um, so that's still three times your body weight per year going in the landfill. It's a lot of landfill. And landfills decompose over time, which causes um, methane, which is one of the, if you believe in, if you believe in greenhouse warming, then it's multiples, 10 times worse or something than CO2. Whereas modern incineration facilities, as they find out in Minneapolis, incinerate at about, three, about 850 degrees Celsius. They still put out some heavy metals because, you know, you don't burn metal. Uh, but there's a lot of scrubbing technology. And you really have to compare, you have to compare combustion with, you know, the air in general, and you know they say, well, it precipitates to the dirt, but in dirt, globally, everywhere, not just before, not just since the industrial revolution, there were pollutants in the dirt. You know, it's a world that's got all kinds of stuff in dirt, all kinds of stuff in the ground, in the air. Um, it's it wasn't all pristine, uh, even when nobody was burning anything, and of course. Uh, if you go to developing countries or really poor countries, you know, they're burning dung to cook their foods. And that has way more bad stuff in it. Not, I'm just telling you that it's a, it's a spectrum. And what I liked about this, about this green tumble is they seem to have a very balanced view on a lot of environmental issues. I went back and looked up the, the, uh, the sort of the about us. It's, it's a couple. One's from your room, Romania. The other's from Czech Republic, I think. And... Um, they are genuine, genuinely serious about environmental issues, but they're also genuinely serious about looking at a lot of solutions. And uh, if you say, well, John, what are you doing talking about this? Well, and I happen to have this shirt on hand. Let's see. Oh, Rico Cement was a company I helped start, and we developed a cement based on Roman formulas for recycling fly ash, which is a byproduct of burning coal that goes into landfills in the millions and millions of tons every year. Millions of tons. Okay. So uh, we actually came up with a, a really, really good use for it. And so I know a little bit about this stuff. But anyway, what are the advantages of incineration? Well, efficient use of space. It doesn't, it doesn't go into the landfill. It eliminates groundwater contamination. It does produce greenhouse gases, but it also generates energy. Now, I used to say, well, it generates energy, but it's, but it's not as efficient in greenhouse gases even as coal. But the truth is that it has a lower carbon footprint. There's less transportation because you can put these closer to the source of the garbage. And um, for each ton of garbage incinerated, another ton of gar CO2 is put into the atmosphere. But this is an improvement over landfills, which give off methane, as I said. gives off methane. And they give it off for 30 years or more. And landfills are 30 contribute 30% more to global warming than burning the equivalent in an incinerator. So it's a complex issue. I just wanted to talk about that because 
you know, we think that the best is recycling, but the applications of recycled plastics are limited. And we used to use uh, we used to use glass crushed crushing dust as one of the components, a nice important component, and also something that ends up in the landfills. Why? Because you know you think that when you put the bottles in the recycle bin, that they'll end up in some place in some recycling center. But the, even because you put it in that that bin, but only about 10% of the glass, as an example, and I think plastic is similar, ends up getting actually recycled because, you know, in the in in the in in all truth, it's like paper is less environmentally damaging to make than to recycle. Glass, plastic, a lot of those things are. So you're actually just to melt it down to repurify it can be more trouble than it's worth and so it makes it hard to find applications it's just it's a complex world so i highly recommend this uh green tumble as a website and i recommend this i recommend this article now let's go over to another article i've been trying to get to marrying sales and marketing did the pandemic rekindle a flame from becca applestack i like that name um she says, I'm a firm believer that marketing can and should be the sales team's greatest asset. But 9 out of 10 sales and marketing professionals say they are misaligned across strategy, process, content, and culture. And only 28% of salespeople said marketing was their best source of leads. You know, one of the really funny things is we give, this, we give the leads to the salespeople. Back in the 80s, we, we, we tried... Well, we developed a system. We called it we called it integrated marketing, um, but we developed it for Standard Oil for for uh, yeah Standard Oil Company in Chicago, and then it went to um, Deluxe Check, and then it went to 3M, and then it went out to Hewlett Packard, uh, where Tom Siebel I think heard about it, and he renamed it Customer Relationship Management. But our whole focus was on the most efficient use of keeping into of generating leads and keeping in touch with existing customers, and so we had a huge, a huge um, infrastructure to cross-check, to adapt direct marketing principles to the lead generation process for big companies. Obviously, those are all big companies, and one of the rules was don't give a valuable salesperson a bunch of lousy leads. In the best lead generation efforts it's about 10 percent make any sense to follow up you know there's people just looking for information looking for free samples who knows what and uh you know i got i get every day i get on linkedin things where we can send you you know thousands of names in b2b well they almost never go to the right decision maker they almost never work with a darn if you mail them if you do social media it doesn't cost so much but again not very valuable and so uh, the leads generated are equally not very valuable. It's a winnowing process. And so we took people that basically were compensated for winnowing and we made it efficient and easy. Now, as we got into more and more data, they would get less and less efficient because they would try to think about what to say and all the rest of it. And nowadays, I don't know how you'd even do it because, you know, I get I get so many spam alert calls on my phone. That was one of the principal ways we did it. 
I'm not saying that there's an easy answer, but I'm saying that it is challenging with sales and marketing. And salespeople were always complaining about the quality of the leads unless we went to a lot of trouble to make sure that that lead was really valuable and in the buying cycle at least somewhere before we gave it to the salespeople. Because salespeople, calling on people is hard. Calling on them, calling on real people. I, it's hard for me. I, I have a really good idea of who might use my services, but it's hard. I've been doing uh, mail pieces, but, you know, after 70, 80 of them, uh, I hadn't got a lot of comment, hadn't got a lot of feedback. Nobody called up and said, John, I love, well, actually, several did, but uh, they're, they're quite clever, I think. So now I'm kind of reserving them to people that I really want to reach out to, and consequently, I don't do them as much, and it takes, and it's not as, you know, there's no feedback whatsoever. But anyway, so the only way to move now, I, see, I don't know where these, I don't know where these axioms exactly come from. The only way to move quickly is collaboration. Actually, the quickest way is to find somebody who knows what they're doing and see what they think. That's much faster and much more likely to come up with something breakthrough than to put it in committee. That not only doesn't move quickly, collaboration can slow things down immensely and oftentimes with little to show for it. So that's the first one. Uh, the second, you know, the startup mentality is if we don't get this off the ground, we're going to starve. It's going to fail. That's the startup mentality that you just don't get that at a big company. That's not why you went to work for a big company. You weren't worried, you know, you might get reassigned to a different project, but you're not going to just disappear into thin air like a startup. Okay. Second, treat digital as a primary tactic for reaching B2B customers. What? You know, I have almost 12,000 first level connections. You know, we send out thousands and thousands of email. We get very few clicks. And these are people that I consider friends in many cases. So digital sales teams are now addicted to content. Also, I don't know where that comes from. There's no footnotes on this article. Addicted to content. The pandemic unceremoniously shoved digital transformation onto the docket. Why? For industries that have a habit of clinging tightly to what has always worked. You know what? Sh shoving it overboard isn't as effective as, as holdout tests, attribution, focus on, on actual causal relationship measurement. Not just measurement for its own sake, but what works better? Right. And again, for that, you're better off with a seasoned direct marketer than you are with just hiring a digital native and saying, go find something that might work. Very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. And people are coming back to mail. People are coming back to direct marketing. That's what Jeff out in San Francisco. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to mention his name every day. <laughs> we had such a great talk. He said, digital taps out. There's only so many ways you can spend money, and most of them you can't even see an impact when you stop is people are people are seeing through the emperor's no clothes in digital but the articles keep coming because you can get these published so ask your sales and marketing team what data are we utilizing to understand what content is driving sales leads you know content measurement content marketing magazine said 57% of marketing executives think that content marketing generates sales but only 35% or something measure it. 
or try to measure it. Well, okay, so it's another, it's a religion. Digital has become a religion in marketing. That's what I got to say. How are our digital and social media teams measuring KPIs? Great question. You know, when you go into digital transformation, largely you're throwing causal impact out the window because there's so little impact. Go on Forbes. Look up their best articles. You know, they might have a couple of hundred views, might have a couple of dozen. I know I know authors who just are, are killer good writers and know all about their topic, and, and they get nothing for views. That's just views. There's nowhere near the, you know, the, the connection between views and sales in B2B. It's almost non-existent. Are marketing and sales measuring the same KPIs? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And they probably shouldn't be, right? How much time do we spend generating content that serves the audience versus content that sells? And then they say, well, paradoxically, uh, if you have content that only pushes your products and services, it rarely sells. Right, but if you have content that doesn't try to sell ever, it probably won't sell either. It is paradoxical. That's what makes it tough. It is tough. There's no simple answer. Personalized marketing. You know what's funny about it is personalized marketing, it's really tough in B2B because you've got teams working on stuff, right? Part of the job of sales and sales follow-up is to identify the key decision-making individuals. It's very difficult from 35,000 feet, you know, from the, from the air support level of marketing to identify which individuals really have decision-making power. And oftentimes the ones that raise their hand and will, will uh, download content, you know, and inbound marketing aren't the people that are really making decisions. Most of the time, I'd say. It's almost never the case. Right? They're just the information collectors. And the people behind the scenes are behind the scenes. But with no real, no real evidence, measurement, case study, nothing, the author concludes that personalization is here to say. Is your sales team blasting out email campaigns and postcards? It's better than nothing, right? Which would be a marketing function. You know, that, that's what I, I do. I think this thing is leaning toward uh, premium direct mail that, in, that nurtures relationships across long, years long sales cycles. I think that is a marketing function. And, you know, marketing should set the tone for how much content and how much contact any corporation receives. That was, the, that was the essence of our integrated marketing plan. To have the salespeople generating endless content or endless pestering is really counterproductive. You know, there's, a, there's an excellent book called, the, this, I think it's called The Machine. And uh, maybe I'll put a link to it. Excellent, excellent content. It basically says, and this is in the days when you can go out and call on people, it, ex, it actually says, go out, you should, you should design your entire sales process to give maximum face time to your sales force in front of your customers. But you can do the same thing, you know, essentially with Zoom. Get them appointments. Do the groundwork. Salespeople don't mind getting out and selling. They just don't like getting the appointments if they're like me. 
they want to work, you know, from 10 to 12 and then uh, 1 to 3 and then take the rest of the day off, whether they need to or not. Anyway, so it's an interesting article. Um, it's an interesting article, thoughtful, but I'm not sure it really provides many solutions. I'll reach out to Becca and happy to let her respond and on the show if she wants. Um, have a great day. Like and share. Your friends will know you're smart. Bye-bye.